Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Reminis. So we've got a great bit of hidden history for you today, a wild and heartbreaking story, courtesy of Jill Hoffs. But before we get to it, a few words about our last episode, Tracing Your Criminal Ancestors. I hope you enjoyed it. Even if it's something you're not interested in in doing, my guest Stephen Wade had some very entertaining stories to share. Anyway, It was meant to be a primer for anyone starting their research for the first time. There was a lot that wasn't covered, including a very important part of the research process, libraries. You can only go so far online. The farther and deeper you get into your search, the more likely it is that you will want to visit your local library. So connect to your local historical society. Keep in mind that not all of them will be open during the pandemic. They might require an appointment. Uh, Perhaps you'll only get someone on the phone. But ask for their help, their advice. They are often the keepers of local history. They might have birth records, death records, old city directories, copies of newspapers that haven't yet been digitized. Many of them haven't been. Artifacts, photographs. Libraries are a treasure trove of incredible information, and they're just waiting there for you to utilize them. Also, in case a subscription to Ancestry.com or Newspapers.com is out of your budget, I received an email from Kathleen with a tremendous tip. She writes, I'm an archivist at a state history museum library and enjoyed the episode on researching. One comment slash suggestion, many public or state libraries subscribe to Ancestry.com so cardholders can have access for free. It used to be a requirement to physically be at the library to use it, but they've waived that for the pandemic so people can have access from anywhere with their library card. Also, depending on the size of the city, many public libraries have genealogy departments with amazing researchers who are generally very excited to field reference questions. 
So there we go. No excuse now uh, not to go out and dig up some dirt on your utterly rotten great-great-great-uncle. On with the episode. I'm so pleased to have as my guest today author Jill Hoffs. She grew up on the Scottish coast and attended the University of Glasgow and now lives in the north of England. She's written three books, including The Lost Story of the Ocean Monarch, Fire, Family, and Fidelity. The book she's here to talk about today is called The Lost Story of the William and Mary, The Cowardice of Captain Stinson. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So where did you first hear about this story, and what motivated you to turn it into a book? Well, where I live in Warrington, it's inland, but I was told by a curator at a local museum that we used to have this this enormous shipbuilding industry. I thought he was pulling my leg. It wasn't. We did actually build what had been the largest ship of her class in the world in 1853. And when I was researching that ship, it was a very weird shipwreck, but I'm not actually experienced with shipwrecks. Um, They're all a bit terrifying to me. I'm not a sailor, but I grew up hearing a lot about shipwrecks. I had to kind of research it through the eyes of the people at the time, through reading newspapers and diaries and old accounts of what it was like to to travel by ship around 1850 and see what was fairly typical for a shipwreck and what was, in fact, unusual. And it was when I was looking through that, I came across the accounts of the William and Mary and I was just... I was so shocked I hadn't already heard of it because it was just so compelling and so awful. And it it bit the bug in me. So um, I looked into it further. And the more I looked into it, the more gripped I became. And um, the result was the book. I, I wrote the book I wanted to read about it. So before we get to the details of the shipwreck and the horrific scenes that unfolded. Let's lay some groundwork, if you don't mind, on how these emigrants ended up in their terrible predicament. Uh, Perhaps we can start with the conditions present in many parts of Europe that led to this large emigration to Canada, Australia, and the United States in the 1850s. The grass was definitely greener. We'd had the potato famine here, as well as other famines, uh, cotton and um, other crops. Um, The potato was obviously the the best known and it was grim. It was it was just appalling. The conditions here were were terrible and the, the social class system, it was pretty inflexible. So if you were born a servant, odds on you were going to die a servant or perhaps a pauper. Whereas these other countries were um, opening up as far as the West was concerned and full of 
opportunity of hope of fresh air unpolluted water you could pick the fruit from the trees you could shoot the wildlife and eat it um whereas in the uk if you did that then you possibly faced um the death sentence it's hard to imagine just how horrific conditions were here at the time so people didn't have much to lose by going elsewhere but they had potentially so 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 much to gain absolutely yeah and you also write that social mobility would have been denied to many who stayed where they were definitely definitely it's i mean we still have um a kind of unwritten class system here which is archaic and unpleasant but it's nothing compared to how it was at that time and the the, the double standards involved the 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 deprivation it caused was just horrific um you know ch- children were just utterly disposable uh, not just in terms of um the, the kind of better known things like uh, chimney sweeps and working in factories because you know their, their fingers were tiny, they were tiny, they were able to clean machinery far more easily. But just it shocks me now, and I did try to kind of look at it through um, Victorian eyes as best I could in terms of like you know reading. Victorian newspapers day in day out and getting a sense of how how they viewed the world and uh, what was important to them and children would they would be flocking to the parks at night and just sleeping naked under tools that had been left by the groundsmen you know and if they died they died but it was just seen as well they were just refuse and I've got my own child, and I, I just, I just can't imagine that. Yeah. So, can you talk about this group of Dutch immigrants that formed the bulk of the passengers on this fateful voyage? Who formed the group, and what was what was its ultimate goal? What was their destination? Sure, there was there was a large group of people in the Netherlands, namely Friesland, and I hope I'm saying that right, and they decided that they were going to establish their own their own town. I, I don't know quite if it qualified as a village or a town at that time, but their own town in America. And so they travelled together to England and the initial crossing from the Netherlands to the east coast of England was enough to put some of them off and understandably so that the sea was rough. Seasickness is it it's incomparable to anything you could experience on land. And as someone who gets seasick themselves, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for them. And it's not like now they weren't in a covered area on a ship they were just stacked in the open next to cows 
Um, the cows were treated better. <laughs> the cows got a bit of shelter. So some of them, some of the group turned back, but the rest travelled by rail through England and seemed to have been quite charmed by what they saw. The topography is completely different. The, the Netherlands has got so much reclaimed land and it's very, very flat. Whereas the north of England, it's quite hilly in comparison. And they did stand out a bit because the way that the women dressed in particular was very different to how the women in England would dress at the time. The women from the Netherlands had comparatively very short hair and white cotton caps. And then they had these um, ornamental ear coverings um, a bit like headphones today, but they were like spirals of, of gold or silver. Very, very beautiful, very ornate and um, very symbolic for the people in the Netherlands. But to people who had never encountered such a thing, it was quite shocking. So they travelled through England, they got their bearings and arrived in Liverpool. And as a as a large group of, of men, women, children, different abilities, they stuck together and unfortunately found the William and Mary to uh, continue their journey with. So forgive my mispronunciation, um, but, but the organizer of this trip from the, the Netherlands was a gentleman named Opki Banama? Yes. <laughs> Your pronunciation is likely to be far better than mine. Um. <laughs> so he was a, a grain merchant who put this group together. He, he paid for it. And the idea was that they would travel to England, then across the Atlantic, around Florida, and into the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. Yeah. To New Orleans. And then travel, assumably by steamboat, yes. to Iowa, where they would build their own Dutch town. And it's a fairly well-reasoned thing to do. Um, unfortunately, the, it could have gone very, very smoothly. Unfortunately, the ship that they chose to go across um, the Atlantic on um, couldn't have been much worse. And this ship was not their first choice. The plan was to sail on a ship called the Philadelphia, right? Yeah. It was quite often the case when you got to Liverpool that you may have your sights set on one particular vessel or one particular captain, but have to have to adapt, have to change that. Um, and unfortunately, this was the case here. The posters that they would have seen pasted about the place, the the newspaper adverts and the like, the different ships and different captains would promise the world that, you know, they'd have grossly inflated measurements and uh, promises of wonderful cuisine and safety and all that. But there was nothing to uh, fact check that. So you could put anything at all. There was nothing to stop you. So there were ship inspectors in Liverpool 
which is where the William and Mary would depart. But you write that these inspectors were few and far between. Yeah. And it was hard to know whether they spent any significant time examining the William and Mary, right? Yeah, I mean, Liverpool at the time was this enormous port. It was it was very, very heavily used. So you could go, I can't remember, was it something like half a mile out from the actual port just by going from deck to deck to deck of all the ships that were clustered there. It acted like a funnel for um, Europe at the time. So on some, some ships that were heading for Australia would be taking people from as far away as India, Portugal, Canada, Brazil, all sorts of places. But they'd go to Liverpool first to get to Australia because that was the place, that was the hub of activity. And, and Liverpool could be a very dangerous place too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a desperate place. It was a place where a lot of people, a lot of people who were coming from elsewhere would then get to Liverpool and that would have been enough for them. That would have, you know, that would have taken all their mental and physical resources just to get there. And they were basically completely easy pickings to the kind of ruffians and louts of the area um, who also saw the place as easy pickings and gathered there as heavily as the ships and the captains did. So you would literally sit on your luggage, your steamer trunk, boxes, whatever, but people would be tugging it out from under you. Yeah, there's nothing you could do unless you, <laughs> unless you were heavy enough and rough enough yourself to um, deter these these thieves. You'd be absolutely robbed blind, and there'd be all sorts of people offering services who you know would just take your money and go, or encourage you to go somewhere else, or promise whatever you know, victuals, whatever. And then you'd be dead, basically. You'd be completely um at their mercy. It was it was desperate really. Um unless you had considerable amounts of money and social status, you know, nobody was gonna help you. Right. Or unless, as you said in your book, they traveled together as a large group. Yes. Which helped them maintain a level of safety. Yes, yes. And I think as well, because they were quite identifiable as a group, visually, that would have helped too. It would be quite off-putting to try to take one of them on because you would see that they effectively had this massive team of support with them. Right. So the William and Mary, would you tell us why this ship was in England? Who owned it? The kind of ship it was? Sure. The William and Mary was a very, very ordinary ship. She was built in the US for taking cargo. So she was only built with uh, the crew in mind in terms of home comforts, in terms of things like uh, sanitation, 
cooking, sleeping, all that. And the captain, this seems to have been his maiden voyage. There's no record of him having captained other ships, having even worked his way up through the crew. His father-in-law, however, was part owner. So it may have been something to do with that, I suspect. So he and his crew had sailed across, unloaded their cargo, and now they were going to take emigrants. And the thing about emigrants, they were they were seen as human cargo. They paid up front, they loaded and unloaded themselves, and they would take care of themselves throughout the voyage. So whereas different uh, temperatures, humidities and the like would mean that the crew would have to be... Um, monitoring the cargo, making sure that gases hadn't built up, that they weren't rotting, that they were um, appropriately tightened or loosened in terms of the ropes holding them in place, all that. People would would go on board themselves. There was no heavy lifting involved. They'd go on board, they'd paid up front, and then, well, they were at your mercy so having your having a good captain was the difference between life and death and this was Stinson's first shot at it and he really didn't he really did not do himself proud at all Stinson was from Maine correct and his yeah. and his crew as well so so they appeared to be a relatively tight-knit group knew each other's families, etc. And you write that on paper, at least, the William and Mary looked like a decent quality ship to travel on. Yeah, I mean, the thing with it being um, the first time it, it was used for emigrants was things would, on the face of it, be fresh. It It wouldn't have... For example, it w- it wouldn't be caked in the grot and waste of having had a bunch of humans below deck in close proximity to each other for months. It would be the the first time used for this, so really it should have been okay. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Yeah, right. And no animals were being transported on the ship, so no worries about manure and stink and all of the headaches caused by that kind of cargo. Yeah, I mean, it was quite standard for things like cows, sheep, pigs, things like that to be carried so that you had fresh milk, fresh eggs, fresh meat as you travelled. Not just in terms of where, you know, we're, we're taking this cow with us, um, to establish our farm or whatever, but basically as a, a living larder for the voyage. Um, there was nothing like this for the William and Mary that I could find any records of. There would likely have been rats, but that's something that would, would have actually been a good thing at the time because if the ship becalmed, if they got stuck somewhere for ages, 
that would be fresh meat. So that wouldn't have been off-putting to, to have rats on board unless they were actually coming into the cabins, nibbling your toes or your face while you're asleep and being quite, uh, you know, quite bold. Passengers at the time would be provided with a certain amount of provisions on board, but encouraged to bring some of their own. So, for example, marmalade, ginger, things like that would be recommended for dealing with seasickness and for kind of keeping you healthy, along with other like preserved and pickled items. But apparently, you know, at the time they were assured by legislation that, yeah, you know, you could go on a ship and you could be assured of a certain amount of rations for your your journey. Now, American rules, and this was an American ship, American rules were more generous than the British rules. So British rules were that under-14s were classed as a half person. And that's in terms of space allotted to them, rations, all the things that keep you functioning. But there's a massive difference between a very small child and a teenager. So if you've got, say, a bed that is allocated the space for four people, but actually because they're all under 14, it means a space for eight half people in theory you could have you know eight young men or young women crammed into a bed they did in theory have it that the sleeping arrangements would be segregated by gender but that didn't really mean much in practice and um it didn't mean that you were safe from the crew the captain anyone like that once you were on board and once you were sailing you were completely at their mercy we'll be back in a brief moment hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley full money each weekday on motley full money we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on wall street on weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So the passengers before boarding were examined by a doctor. Yes. But not very carefully, right? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been basically a look over. There wasn't the time, expertise, or legislation for more. Any piece of health and safety um, or legislation in, in that regard, it's got a significant body count behind it. That body count hadn't been reached at this point. So everybody was able to stand, was able to kind of look the doctor in the eye and didn't have, say, visible signs of syphilis or things like that, um, which could mean like half your face is gone. So some of the diseases at the time, they were eye-catching, to say the least. So everyone got the okay and in theory, there should have been a surgeon on board. However, the, the captain decided that he was going to take that role and um, save some money. So how many total passengers were there on the William and Mary? 208, as far as I can tell. Um, passenger lists would be carried with the ship. So if, unfortunately, if the ship sank or was was taken or anything like that, the passenger list would go too, which seems like a glaring oversight now, but sometimes, um, I mean, it's a glaring oversight. I can't pretend otherwise. But um, at the time, people would be boarding to the, to the last minute in some cases. Uh, the ship may advertise what time it would be sailing at, but they may decide, actually, um, you know, there's a bit of a gap in the queue to leave because that's how busy Liverpool was. Um, we're, we're going, you know, we've got the cargo on, we're going. And it would mean that, that people who'd paid to go and had their luggage on board but had, you know, felt, that, felt pretty safe in the knowledge that there was another, like, six hours or whatever to go until uh, departure and were having a drink in a, a tavern or having something to eat or stretching legs or saying goodbye or, you know, whatever, would suddenly see their vessel on the go and they'd have to run like crazy to the edge of the docks and just hope that somebody, you know, threw a rope down for them or that they could jump aboard somehow or they'd like throw their children up to their, to their missus it, it was a bit haphazard. Yes, absolutely, yeah. 
So there were Scotch passengers, Irish, English, and the Dutch, of course. Yes, and they pretty much kept themselves to themselves. Apart from the language barrier, the customs were very different. The behavior was very different. The Dutch people were quite a cohesive group. They were well known to each other. They had common language, common um, food preferences, dress, common standards. And also they had their their form of religion um, in common and they were very um, faithful to it. The British contingent weren't necessarily known to each other. There were some families and some groups, but it wasn't the same as effectively a travelling settlement. And some of them were very raucous, inebriated, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of nice ways to put it. Um, <laughs> you know, they were they were basically uh, when they were on board. That was it. They were they were cutting loose. You know, they had they had a, a shall we say a great awareness of mortality and the fecklessness of time, and were making the very very most of it. And also the the water on these ships, you know, sometimes it would be like pea soup. It would be alive. So drinking booze was actually safer. And some of them had quite a taste for it, quite thirsty. This journey would have been about six and a half weeks to seven weeks, correct? I believe you, 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 you say in your book. Something like that, yeah. Uh, having to live in the hull of a ship in the dark, alcohol can definitely take away, <laughs> right? Some of the, the fear and loneliness and, and homesickness. Yeah, and it's what they were used to. And I think it's a, it, would, it would, with all the bumps and things from whenever it got a bit rough, um, because people would would roll out of their beds, and by beds I mean bunks. Things like alcohol would loosen you up. I don't personally drink, but I I can completely see why this was not just uh, viable but recommended for the journey. And people would be used to it. Uh, children would be used to it. It was just that. It, they weren't necessarily, you know, sitting there with margaritas like you might expect now on a on a cruise. But having weak beer, um, having spirits, it, it it could make a big difference to their quality of life. So in the first few days on open waters, everything goes well, plenty of food, water, but then they're hit with a series of calamities bad weather, sickness. Yeah, the, their mortality on board was quite striking. In quick succession, they had 14 die. And some of them were, it's not like it was just kids or just the the older people on board. Um, this would have been some of the, the very young, healthy, fit people. It was It was a real mix. And 
it was quite worrying. Um, that that was a, a significant mortality rate for such a small contingent of passengers, and the captain just didn't have a clue. He had, as far as medical knowledge and training went, he had a little pamphlet that apparently he kept in his breast pocket. So when people had these, you know, terrible fevers, they were that they, they were dying in front of him. The most he would do is prescribe them some bacon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's quite quite the thing. You know, they're lying there, they're they're dying, they're crying for their mother, and oh, bit of bacon, get it down you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> Luckily, the Dutch contingent they had a gentleman with some medical experience. Yeah, yeah, they were very well prepared. I mean, they they had very much thought in detail about what would be what would be necessary to survive, but also what would be necessary to thrive on board and when they'd established um, a settlement. And he, the, the doctor, was really good. And when there was um, people giving birth elsewhere on the ship among the the british groups you know he was there he was he was very good part of what allowed you to patch this story together is through accounts written by survivors right yes yes um we have um some memoirs some diaries and some uh survivor accounts that were in the press at the time and there's probably more being digitized since. So I, I would recommend that anyone who thinks that their ancestors were involved with this carry on researching because every day people around the world are, are making these amazing documents available to people like me who sit on their sofa and read about it in comfort. And there may be even more out there. The the diaries were very enlightening, especially in terms of what the people took pleasure in, what they found sad, um, their state of minds, things that you don't really get from cold hard facts. And I got very, very fond of the, the people on board and uh, very angry on their behalf that they were, they were so badly mistreated and they were just, <laughs> they were completely taken advantage of. And it was just so wrong. Even at the time, it was wrong. So the crew, uh, again, they were close with each other, but they weren't a cruise ship crew, right? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't trained in the art of hospitality. And there ended up being some tension that escalated when the cook on board shared some food he shouldn't have with the passengers. Yeah, the provisions that they were entitled to, they weren't given. The 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 ship really dawdled across the Atlantic. It really took its time, and um, that wouldn't matter quite so much if it was you know cotton on board or bricks or whatever. But these were people, and their own supplies ran ran out really quick. What they should have been given. And were you know promised by 
legislation. They weren't. So they were starving. And they were begging the cook to just give them something, anything. And um, eventually he did. He he was sneaking them bits of food. Not that, you know, the crew or anyone was missing out. They were taken care of. And he was sneaking bits of food to the passengers as discreetly as he could. But then he sneaked them a bit of um, the captain's pudding. So uh, I think it was a kind of sweet flan type thing. And that was it. You know, he was done for. He was taken on deck and the passengers were made to stay on deck and watch as he was beaten to a pulp in front of them. And when they wanted to to intervene and to kind of stop this this terrible treatment of someone who was just acting with a little bit of humanity, they were told that, you know, if they did, they'd be getting that treatment too. You know, it was it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And when you're in the middle of an ocean like that, anything can happen. You've got nobody about to back you up. Um, nobody to keep people like that in check. It was just, it was just utterly disgusting. Right. So the foods they were serving were basically salted meats, dried peas, rice. They were the primary staples. Yes. And these were things that um, would have to be cooked. They'd have to be palatable. And that that was partly the cook's job. What some what some ships would do is they'd have little areas on deck that had um, brick or stone underneath them, and that was places where the emigrants could make little fires to cook food, or they'd be provided with an area that was specifically for them to cook their food, and they would take turns in using it because it, it wasn't like an enormous pot of stew and everybody got a bowl full it was right everybody gets your rations and now everybody has to take a turn to prepare their rations and to cook and to clean which can lead to a lot of tension because everybody wants fed everybody wants things sorted out but Somebody might be, you know, lingering, making something a bit tastier and you're starving. You want to cook yours. So it wasn't brilliant. And one of the ways that captains would cut costs is by selling on unused provisions, unused water and other people buying it at a very reduced price. So in theory, you could have barrels, kegs of water that were 10 years old easy and they would be they would literally be like mushy peas soup it would be wriggling when they were keeping water on board it wasn't in a way that kept the water potable so passengers would talk about how they had to uh, kill the water so they'd boil it or they'd add things to it like fairly strong alcohol to kill it 
so that they could then cook with it. They wouldn't be able to go for baths or wash properly. Uh, what would sometimes happen is that a captain might order for, you know, if it's nice weather and they're not in a massive rush, the captain would order for a sail to be kind of slung overboard and it would act like a little kind of swimming pool. So if you can imagine it like a, a, a sheet underwater at a certain depth, because um, a lot of people wouldn't be able to swim, uh, you know, this would be their first time ever encountering a large body of water. But they'd be able to go in and swim, have a bit of a wash, come back on board and change into different clothes because their belongings would largely be stored out of their reach. Uh, there's no record of that from from Stenson that I can remember. Um, sometimes it would go badly wrong if there was uh, sharks about, for example, but they didn't encounter anything like that till much later. So at a certain point in the journey, a few weeks in, food supplies were getting dangerously low, morale was low, and the Dutch passengers were noticing with alarm that Captain Stinson was visibly nervous. They were supposed to have reached land at that point in the trip, and they hadn't. Yeah, yeah. He didn't seem to have a clue where he was. And if if he had experience as a captain, as in he'd he'd worked his way up, he'd been first mate or had at least travelled that route several times, that shouldn't have been the case. As it was, it, they realised that instead of being where they should be, they were uh, by the Bahamas. And the Bahamas are a wonderful place, but they're quite perilous if you're sailing. Um, there's a lot of very shallow channels and like coral outcrops that would rip the bottom of the ship open. And sailors that I've talked to these days are quite divided on the issue and I dare say a lot of your listeners will be quite divided on the issue too it seems to be two camps some that are saying no you'd completely avoid going through this particular channel in the Bahamas it's so shallow it's so perilous um, a ship that's that particular depth absolutely no way you'd go around and other people are saying well you know food's running low and you're already very behind schedule you would make a kind of run for it through that channel uh you would just rely on seamanship and fingers crossed you'd get through and it, it, it it's the right option i err on the previous side, I I think he should never have have tried this. It's it's ludicrous the 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 maps at the time, the depths at the time, and the depth of the ship indicate absolutely no way this was this was doomed to disaster. And that's exactly what happened. And I think perhaps there's a strong case to suggest 
that that was deliberate. Yeah, I do want to ask you about that in a moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very interesting point you make. Um, So how far did they get before disaster struck? And what was the cause of their trouble? They got quite close to, I think it was, is it Abaco? I'm I'm very sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And the ship was going through at night and... uh, in itself, that, that, that's not the best of ideas unless you do subscribe to the quicker is better notion. So they couldn't even see. And at first it, it, they hit some kind of rock or coral outcrop, which must have just, it must have just sickened everybody on board. That feeling of just kind of grinding and juddering on something. They managed to get the ship off whatever it was that it caught on and then it went on another rock and they were stuck. And water started kind of, water started flooding in and the captain was pacing the deck and he was in his slippers and you know, shouting at the, the passengers to do this, that and the next thing. Some of them were actually sailors themselves it's just they weren't working their passage. They were, well, they were just passengers. So they started using the pumps, uh, which would be physically exhausting. And we're talking about you know, malnourished, starving, exhausted, mistreated people who are manning these pumps, frantically trying to kind of keep the ship afloat at least till daybreak, at least till they can see what's going on. And the captain's shouting, you know, this, that, and the next thing, being horrible. And while the others are distracted in the background, he's got his crew filling the uh, lifeboats with provisions, with goods, with um, things that they would need. But at the same time, he's, he's going up and down to see how the level is of water inside the ship and he's reporting back that it's like it's double what it actually is panicking people further and the 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 dutch chaps were were eliciting promises from him that he would stay put and keep the ship afloat do his best do as he is expected to do in his role as captain of the ship and he's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I will if you keep pumping. I will if you do this, that, the next thing. But next thing they know is as dawn's breaking, he changes into his boots from his slippers and, a, and basically kind of goes, oh, look over there. And then him and his crew beetle off in the, the lifeboats. There, there were some people who managed to get in one of the lifeboats some of the passengers and they they survived just but even the lifeboats were they were so poorly maintained now at the time it wasn't the case that a ship had to have enough lifeboats to comfortably carry everybody on board that would have been laughed at lifeboats were actually campaigned against at the time they were seen as 
bad luck. They were seen as getting in the way, making it far more likely that you would wreck in the first place. Uh, And people also thought, well, if there's lifeboats on board, people are going to take that as licence to misbehave because they've got lifeboats there to rescue them just in case. All sorts of ludicrous things like that. They had some boats on board. Usually you would be keeping them well maintained. Uh, you might you might keep putting them into the water um, every so often to make sure that the wood still remained seasoned. It hadn't shrunk in the heat and left gaps. These lifeboats, they had gaps you could put your fingers through. Uh, they were not seaworthy. So... The captain had had the emigrants, um, the ones that weren't pumping, ripping up bedclothes and stuffing the gaps and you know doing their very best to make it that they had somewhere to go as the ship went down. They had a, a distress flag that they put up, um, which would mean that any vessel that was going past and saw it would know, no, actually, we need help. <laughs> We've not just stopped for a wee break, we need help. But the captain got the crew to take it down and hide it. And it's just incredibly suspicious to me. He he just seems like such a wrong one. Um, so next thing you know, it's getting light and, and he's off. And the crew are off and the provisions they have been left to die. And I think that was very deliberate. And he even stood and said, fear thee well, friends, and kind of saluted to them as they went. I mean, it just seems, (laughs) that seems really quite sarcastic and savage. Well, yeah, the, the imagery is striking, I mean, there's there's mass panic on the deck of the ship. Everyone sees the captain abandoning them. And everyone knows that a captain is supposed to go down with his ship. Yeah. So so they're watching him depart and he's kind of waving at them. And they're just shrieking and screaming in absolute terror, right? But Because, uh, okay, this is it. This is the captain of the ship. Leaving, if he's given up, it means we are all doomed. We're all dead. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he he stands there and says that, the sheer gall of the man. And some people could swim. And they swam after the lifeboat that the captain and crew were in. And they were cut to, cut to pieces. They were hacked at. You know, they, they were holding on, you know, they were reaching up putting the hands on the side of the boat and the captain ordered the crew to have at them. And so they were just chopped to pieces with hatchets and at least two people were murdered in this way in front of everyone who loved them. So on the on the ship itself, which still got the water coming in, it pretty quickly divided the people on it into the people who were who were pumping and who were taking turns, you know, keeping that water out enough to keep the ship afloat and people who were praying. And this is with, you know, 
children on board and babies and this young woman from um from the north of england susanna she was a teenager she was recently married um she was heavily pregnant they were set you know setting off for this new life and her husband had had buggered off on one of the lifeboats and left her so that she's there with like the rest of her family and she goes into labor during all this premature labor and i i mean as a passenger that would have terrified me because all the 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 things that 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 happen when you give birth would attract sharks and i would be uh, very aware of that if i was one of the people that had been left on board the the dutch doctor he, what a guy he did his best to help her and by this point the water was really like overcoming the the ship and she gave birth while she was up to her waist in water not deliberately not like a water birth these days this is just that was that was where the ship was at you know it was under their feet but it wasn't sailing and um the baby lived for half an hour which i find nothing short of miraculous and they had two days and two nights on this wreck just pumping and pumping and praying and hoping and the captain was just a way off getting rescued went through um one of the the shipping lanes and um got picked up and oh how terrible oh the ship sank nothing i could do oh those poor souls um you know completely out of harm's way quite happily as far as he was concerned had had mass murdered all these poor people back once more after a quick break When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Yeah, he he was telling people that the water was 10 feet deep inside the ship, which was too much to ever be able to get out. That was his excuse. Yeah. And in reality, it was four feet tops. Passengers were doing a good job of pumping the water out and keeping the ship afloat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, if he told me the sky was blue, I would still check. I mean, th- this is such a horrible man and his crew they were people he knew 
you know, there were people he had a bond with and if they went against what he said, the repercussions would be quite quite unfortunate, I think. Especially from what was then, you know, it, it, a kind of small town mentality. You know, everybody knew each other. So some of his crew were nicer than others, but ultimately the captain very much gave the 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 flavor to the ship and he was he was a terrible terrible man um you know there's suggestions from some of the language that that was used by survivors that him and the crew had got some of the dutch women to um parade about and perform for them and the 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 subtext of what was written seems to hint at um, them being abused, um, quite possibly raped. But that's not something that would be addressed at the time because they were completely under this guy's control. And if it was recorded, then everybody would know and the, the people who'd survived this terrible behaviour it would have it would have made their lives even more difficult if that was made publicly known oh yeah without a doubt so just to clarify there were two lifeboats that escaped uh one with the captain and his select crew members and the other with many of the remaining crew and a handful of passengers two of these passengers were dutch uh who luckily had knives because their first night away from the main ship, they overheard some of the crew talking about killing them. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then the captain (laughs) leaves his two biggest troublemaking crew members on board. Well, by the signs of it, they were, uh, shall we say drunk? (laughs) They were um, pretty inebriated. It, they were not left to uh, to help. They were left to be got rid of. And I think that you're right that one of them declares himself captain or something. Uh, yeah. But the, the thing is that one of the reasons that the captain was meant to effectively go down with the ship, or at the very least be last off, is that if you left the ship, then you were... Um, effectively renouncing ownership of it you know someone else could claim it as salvage and then you'd have to pay a lot of money to get it back whereas if the captain was still on board um yeah they might rescue it and take it in tow or whatever but um it would still be yours so the fact that he he'd done one and his father-in-law was one of the part owners you know it uh, the whole situation stinks but i it it may not have been pre-planned as a, a scheme for them to gain from insurance or such like, but it certainly ended up being, um, I think, about the money. If everybody was dead, then there was nobody that had to, there was nobody to pay compensation to. But if they lived, then they would be entitled to money 
towards their clothing and possessions and a fare to wherever it was that they were originally intending to go. It, it made far more sense for everybody to die financially. Right, right. It's speculation, of, of, of course, but it's speculation based on historical fact. I mean, there were captains at the time that, that purposely destroyed their boats for insurance money. Yeah, and you know, who, who's going to say otherwise? And it's not like they had black boxes or something on the ships. And with emigrants, emigrants were viewed as the lowest of the low. They were far less than livestock. They paid up front. There was absolutely, there was actually, unless you were looking to have repeat customers and that was your paradigm for business, it actually cost you money if your emigrants survived. They would be eating your provisions, so you couldn't resell them. And um, yeah, if you got rid of them pretty quick, then you've got their fee and you don't have to do anything else. And you've already talked about the fact that the logbook wasn't taken, but Captain Stinson did probably have time to take it had he actually felt it was important. I don't know whether he was in a panic. I don't know if there was something else up with him. I I tried, when I was researching the book, and I was trying to think as charitably and kindly as possible of everybody that was involved and try and think of, well, perhaps it was this, perhaps it was that. And with him, it just seems to be, I don't think he was very bright. And he certainly wasn't very nice. And he definitely should not have been captain. He didn't have the experience. He didn't have the character. It was just utterly disastrous. And it was interesting as well because I was I was talking to... Because when I'm doing the research, there's, there's certain people that I talk to about it to get um, wiser heads involved, people with more experience or people with very particular experience. And I was talking to a friend who's a retired, um, I think it's a marine accident investigator. So he'd spent his life looking at this, but for current things. And um, he said, well, it's it's really telling that Stinson changed his, his, his uh, occupation after that because... Captains were used, you know, they would lose ships, yeah. Um, and sometimes it would be under dodgy circumstances. Sometimes it would just be unavoidable. It would be, you know, a storm or some kind of tragedy. And if they survived, well, they would get back up and they would get another command. They would get another ship. And that was just the way of it. It was very, very common that ships would wreck. You know, you're talking an average of like three or four a day in British and Irish waters alone at that time, a bit like car accidents these days. So there was no reason for him to not carry on except that he was absolutely not cut out for it in the first place and a total failure. An absolute coward of the highest order. Yeah. So they are within sight of land, but nowhere 
near able to get to it in, in their state. So how are they able to avoid what should have been a complete disaster? Well, they've, they've located the distress flag from where the captain had hidden it, hoisted it up, and they're very focused on trying to just you know keep the ship afloat until somebody sees them because it's a busy area. And luckily, after a couple of days, some wreckers, some salvage workers are, are sailing past and they see the flag and they actually come to the rescue. And they could very easily, uh, in terms of financial benefits, have waited till more people died or have killed them off themselves. Nobody would be any the wiser. There'd be no witnesses uh, and had the, the, the value of it. Because a lot, a lot of the people in the Bahamas at the time, it would be very much hand-to-mouth existence. Um, these guys, they, they were incredible, absolutely incredible. They didn't just come to the rescue, um, they almost gave their lives in doing so. And they were, they were ferrying people back and forth to the nearest suitable island um, and depositing them on the beach. And at the end, the, the, the captain of the, the ship, um, not, not Stinson, hasten to add, um, the captain of the, the wrecking vessel, he swam down uh, and got the last few people out. And it's only because he was such a good swimmer that he, he survived that. And then, you know, got everybody to safety um, was very, very kind to them, very, very nice, and uh, then went to raise the alarm at, at a nearby settlement. And I think that speaks incredibly highly of um, the people of the Bahamas at that point, and, you know, that the, they heard this, and despite their own reduced circumstances, open arms, at, you know, they couldn't have done more for these survivors uh, they absolutely welcomed the men. They got them clothing, food, everything. Um, it, it it's such a stark contrast to Stinson. The, the captain of this wrecker, which was called the Oracle, his name was Robert Sands, right? Yeah, yeah. He was a very good man. Very good man. His nickname was Amphibian because of his exceptional swimming ability. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. And the, the the risks he took for complete strangers, it was such a tonic to me as, as someone researching this when he was doing it. I was, I was literally ear punching, going, oh, good man, good man. You know, like, really, like, I was so pleased. <laughs> You know, finally some humanity. <laughs> right, right. So you go into detail on what happens to Captain Stinson and his lifeboat. Their rescue goes much better than those in the second lifeboat, including the, the immigrants that had stowed away. Mm -hmm. We'll let that be a surprise to readers who choose to buy your book. But, <laughs> but obviously news travels slowly in 1853, so Stinson is able to control the, the narrative for a short time mm -hmm. with his 
explanation of what had happened. Yes. And when he does so, there's an absolute outpouring of grief, of course. Yeah. But also some suspicion, right? Because things aren't quite adding up. People are questioning his story right away. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting. And and again, it, it makes me wonder, well, um, is it because... It, was he already known as a bit of a a bit of a bullshitter as a as a rogue, or is there something else that didn't add up, or you know were the crew um snitching on him or um, you know what was what was happening because wrecks did happen you know that could have been completely legitimate it's just it really really wasn't, but the fact that you know he, he he was saying that he'd seen the ship go down. He was saying, you know, that was it. And I, I think he kind of he covered himself by saying, oh, maybe a, you know, another life, but oh, maybe, maybe. But as far as he was concerned, that was done and dusted. He'd, he'd quite happily, effectively killed a couple of hundred people. And then that sorrow turns to jubilation when the passengers are discovered alive, but then that happiness then turns to anger, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I dearly wish I could have been there when he heard the reports that actually they'd been rescued and they had a very different tale to tell. And I, I can't, I can only imagine the absolute gut-sinking horror he would have felt that this there was living proof that he was a liar and a coward and really just a dastardly example of humanity and um you know it's it I, i'm not at all surprised that he legged it i really am not and to twist the knife in even more for stinson and his boat owning family they are required to pay correct um, yes. For additional traveling expenses, for food, yes. for all of the survivors of the, the William and Mary shipwreck. And I, I can't imagine that his father-in-law was uh, pleased about this at all. Stinson and his wife, they, they seem to have um, gone about as far inland as you can possibly do. And there's no uh, records to indicate that he ever went to sea again. And um, I, I don't think that's any great loss to the world of uh, shipping. I do find it pretty despicable that, that, that he got away with it, though. It's quite upsetting that he got to... He had the luxury of living with this and having this knowledge and, and didn't have to do anything at all to ease his victims' pain, to help them, nothing. And quite a few of his crew went on to, to stay on land and I wonder if that's because of the, the taint of um, being associated with Stinson or if it's 
literally it's it's soured them against the whole idea because you know you could be put to death from mutiny and when I was looking at the the crew and how they acted individually I was trying to bear in mind about the penalty for mutiny the the pressure they would have been under and what might have happened to them if they'd you know directly gone against him because well look what happened to the cook and and that was just some some leftover pudding that he was giving to starving people but um, I don't know is I think it's very easy to have someone from now especially from now in a place of complete comfort and privilege to look back and go, oh, well, they should have done this, should have done that. I, I'm much more forgiving of the crew than I am of Stinson. And I, I, I don't think he ever did anything to redeem himself. Yeah, I, I think you write that Stinson moves to Illinois and becomes a house painter, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about as far removed from a sea captain as you can get. And you weren't able to track John Diamond, the cowardly husband who deserted his pregnant wife. Yeah, yeah, she threw she threw a ring at him. Um, no, I didn't, and it really bugged me because I wanted to find out what happened to him. Um, but inter- well, I find it interesting anyway. Um, one of the other ships that that I researched, the one that actually. I'd originally researched the the Taylor, the Victorian Titanic. There was a man called John Diamond on that, and that sailed a few months after the uh, longboat people made it to Liverpool. So I do wonder if, in fact, he took that ship to try and go to Australia instead. Oh wow! The gold rush. I mean, I mean. It would be a massive coincidence and it's not like John is a, um, an unusual name for that time. <laughs> I mean, it still isn't. Um, but it did It did certainly catch my eye when I was going through what I could find of, of passenger lists for both ships and going, oh, another John Diamond, is there? <laughs> so, um, yeah, who knows? I'd be, I mean, if anybody's listening and, and their ancestors were involved with uh, any of the shipwrecks that I've researched, you know, do get in touch because um, I, I hear from a lot of people. So there's, there's more information that's come to light since each book comes out because, well, with the publication of a book, people kind of go, oh, that's somebody I should talk to about this or about that um i mean i've heard from a lot of descendants and they're you know the the things that they've had to say about what happened it's incredible and the things that that have have come about because of survivors um because they seem to have been involved with some key moments in american history so there's the survival of the people on board may have influenced how things are now on a bigger scale than one might anticipate one of the the one of the little boys that was on board and survived 
um, became a hero at Gettysburg. And I do wonder, well, well, what would the impact have been if he wasn't there? Right, right, yeah. That was, um, I wrote this down. That was Soka Koistra. Um, again, hoping I, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. He Americanized his name to Silas Coster. Yeah. And he fought with the 2nd Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry Regiment in the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. And he was singled out as going above and beyond with that. So, you know, and that's just one example, you know, and, and, and one of the women on board, she had, she had as many descendants that she had enough descendants that it basically would have been the whole passenger contingent all over again. And that's just one woman, uh, you know, there's all these different people. One of them was, I think they were they were friends with Abraham Lincoln. Um, some of them went on to save other other people's lives. All sorts. So that original goal of settling in Iowa as a whole group, it never materialized. But a number of them ended up forming a town in Wisconsin called New Amsterdam, which is kind of halfway in between. Winona, Minnesota, and La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yeah, and I believe there's there's um, some of the houses and things that they built are still in existence now, if I remember rightly. And somebody got in touch fairly recently to say, "Oh, here's my here's images of my however many great grandfathers it was, um, sea trunk and." It's amazing that you know, things like that still exist. Um, and I'm delighted when people tell me about them. Um, and yeah, the, there's a lot of people in, is it, I, I'm not sure how you say it, Eau Claire? Um, Eau Claire, yep. Yeah, um, that's, uh, I think that, that was one of the places that they established as well, because the, the group did fragment and have... Um, <laughs> different places but yeah it's, it, it it thrills me I do sometimes go and, and look at like um the, the places that they founded and the street names and things like that and go oh I wonder I, I, I wonder um what's left there that that they've brought from home and it's lovely it's so nice to see that that they did have you know thrilling and fulfilling lives after this yes for sure yep I, I still can't get that picture out of my mind um the, the lifeboat leaving the ship with john diamond scurrying aboard like a rat and his poor pregnant wife shouting at him right <laughs> and, yeah. and like you said she hurls her wedding ring at him and then he just floats away to leave his wife and his unborn child to die in the ship. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, uh, I, when I looked at the dates, it did look like it's a, a shotgun wedding, but you don't do that with somebody. Like, and, and, and that was his kid. And the whole thing just left a very bad taste in my mouth. Um, I know that 
when something like this happens, you may have hopes and expectations of yourself of how you will cope, what you will do, what it will reveal about you. And sometimes people who who you would think were you know very tough, very honourable, will be complete cowards. Whereas others will really step up to the plate and absolutely, you know, put their life down for you. And I do hope that I would have moral fibre in these situations. And I try to be quite forgiving of the people who, who, for whatever reason, freak out and panic. But I do think, well, that's, that's really quite horrible. And even at the time, it was horrible. It's not. It's not like a modern imposition of our standards on, on them. That that was just quite low. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So you mentioned people contacting you, for people who would like to get a hold of you, learn more about your work. Where should we direct them? Um, I'm usually mostly on Twitter. Um at Jill Hoffs. I, I get a lot of um, people from America thinking that I'm a bloke because um, I gather you you have the name Gil, whereas yes. I've only encountered that as um, Cowboy Gil from Parenthood. But um, I think it was Parenthood. But it's G-I-L-L-H-O-F-F-S. I'm on Twitter. I've got several books out and about. And you can probably find the um, passenger and crew lists if you want to check, see, you know, <laughs> do you have somebody on board? Um, and yeah, if I can help, I will. And um, if I can't, then do forgive me. And you have other great books about ships as well. Sure. Um, my most recent one was The Lost Story of the Ocean Monarch. And that's about a ship that was Boston built, heading for Boston, and caught fire. And the heroism and tragedy that that unfolded from it. And the, the book that started all of this off, um, where I found out about the Ocean Monarch and the William and Mary, um, is the, the lost story of the RMS Taylor, the, the Victorian Titanic. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, Titanic comparisons at, at the end, um, I should say. Um, this happened in 1854, so, you know, well before the Titanic itself actually sailed, but, you know, White Star Line, very, very dodgy goings-on um, and conspiracies and a shipwreck. You've definitely found your niche, uh, Victorian-era nautical disasters <laughs> yes weird shipwrecks that that have been consigned to history um <laughs> <laughs> and i'm happy with that niche I'm, i i feel like these are memorials to people who do, don't usually have graves and don't usually have mention in history but they were important and even if even if your ancestors weren't directly involved with these shipwrecks, it still stands as kind of testament to those times and the difficulties that everyday people faced. 
and I'm very glad to live now. Well, well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's lovely to talk about it after all this time, and and it's lovely that people are interested in in what's happened because there's no markers. There's this is it's hidden history, but it's important. Again, I have been speaking to author Jill Hoffs. Her book is called The Lost Story of the William and Mary, The Cowardice of Captain Stinson. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.